The scripture used a relationship to, to tell this story, a relationship that God had established from the very beginning in which we looked at last week. Marriage is used as a picture of God's relationship with his people throughout the Old Testament, but it's nowhere more vividly on display than in the words and language of the prophets. Here's how it started. God made the world and made Adam and Eve. Sin entered the world and sin spread rapidly to the point where God said, you know what, let's just start over, right, with a clean slate. So he looked and he saw one righteous man, Noah, said, I'll keep you and I'll flood the rest of the world. So that's what he did. And from Noah came a man named Abraham and God said, I'll choose him. And from him I'll create my own nation, which will stand in stark contrast to the nations around him. And this nation will be named Israel. It was named for Abraham's grandson Jacob whom God changed his name to Israel Israel then had 12 sons and those became the head of the 12 tribes of Israel there uh, ended up being a famine in the land and that sent them down to Egypt and while they were there a great nation grew and this nation became a chosen nation a holy nation one that was set apart and God spoke to them and nurtured them and cared for them and entered into a great and lasting covenant with them but they rebelled against God and they served other gods and they did wicked, detestable things and yet God continued to call out to them and he continued to offer love and forgiveness if only they would return to him with their whole hearts. Eventually, enough was enough and God followed through with the punishment he had said would happen if they continued down this path. And neighboring nations came and they carried off the people of Israel into exile. They pillaged the land, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and they burned the temple. And yet even in exile, redemption was promised and the faithfulness of God was seen. And after 70 years, the people began to make their way back to him in the land he had promised them. Now, I would just like to point out that I have told you the entire Old Testament in four minutes. I mean, seriously. Okay. So the prophet Hosea sums up the difficult relationship the people of Israel, or in this metaphor we're looking at today on marriage, in this metaphor, Israel is the wife, and the almighty God of Israel is the husband. And Hosea sums up this relationship. So when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So Hosea married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the marriage between Hosea and Gomer really happened, but it was also painting us a picture of what was happening in Israel because God had also married a woman, Israel, who was committing adultery. And I said before in our, our Revelation series that in Oklahoma, adultery with an A and idolatry with an I sound exactly the same. So it gets a little bit confusing, but Israel was committing adultery with an A through idolatry with an I. She was cheating on the Almighty God with false gods. And so Israel says, I'll go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. And therefore God says, well, I'll block her path with thorn bushes and I'll wall her in so that she can't find her way and she'll chase after her lovers, but she won't catch them. She'll look for them, but she won't find them. And then she'll say, well, I'll go back to my husband as at first because I was better off than now. But she has not acknowledged that God was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil, who lavished on her the silver and the gold that she had to begin with, which she then just used for idol worship. Israel 
had decided to leave the safety and comfort of God's home where she was looked after, where she was protected, to go after something new and exciting because they'll give me everything I want. But then they didn't. And she chases after them only to discover they're gone. They weren't faithful or constant. They weren't true to their promises, not like the one true God who does not change. And so Israel decides to come back to him, but God says, well, will you at th this time at least acknowledge, you know, all that you had before you left? And the passage goes on then with God preparing to punish Israel for all she did. But then he relents and decides to try and win her back. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You'll no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. And in that day, I will make a covenant for them so that all may lie down in safety. I'll betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. And God will go after his wife the people that he loves, and God will love them again. He will restore Israel, and she will once again desire only God as her husband. The covenant God made with his people is pictured in language that compares it to the marriage covenant between men and women, between husbands and wives. And that marriage metaphor continues in an interesting way when the prophet Jeremiah announces that God gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. So now we see in this great metaphor that the relationship between God and his people is marriage, and the exile is divorce. But this is the middle and not the end of the great story the scripture is telling. Because even during the exile, God keeps speaking of restoring his marriage covenant. He keeps saying that he will remove the shame that Israel has placed on herself. In fact, God says, I won't just take you back. I will completely restore you, remake you, and make you new. So after the exile is over, God says, here's what I will do. I will build you up again, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go out to dance with the joyful. And it is in this renewed and restored Israel where the prophet Isaiah says the barren women that we talked about in the first week of this series that's when they will say, we will now have children. And the shame of your youth will be forgotten and the reproach of your widowhood will be remembered no longer. And where God declares that your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. And the divorce certificate given by God in Jeremiah is due to adultery. And the prophet Malachi makes clear that God hates this divorce. It's interesting to note that God's own divorce from his people was because of their adultery. And this is the sole exception Jesus gave for divorce in the New Testament. Without permitting it, we would be held to a higher standard than our holy God. God understands the pain of adultery and permits divorce because of adultery because he experienced it himself. Sin destroyed his marriage covenant with Israel just as sin destroys marriages between husbands and wives. And yet throughout the pain of Israel's unfaithfulness, God continued to love her. He hated the divorce, but he continued, and so he continued really, to pursue and to care and to make a way for her to be restored because God is not man. And his ability to forgive and restore is limitless and unmatched. However, 
The Old Testament ends with the people still struggling to return. With this statement of God hating divorce, that's in one of the last chapters of the Old Testament. The covenant of marriage was not fully restored. The promises of redemption were not completely fulfilled. And there was a longing in the people for someone to truly save them. So there are two reasons for the use of the marriage metaphor in the Old Testament. Number one, to show God's incredible, unceasing, faithful love for his people. And number two, to show us the need for the Messiah. The primary function of the divine marriage metaphor in the Old Testament, Matthew Hayes says, is to prepare Israel for the day when her Messiah will arrive. For only the Messiah can fully restore and renew the covenant which marriage has represented. And so Jesus arrives to reveal himself as the groom. So in the New Testament, the marriage picture shifts and the characters in the great drama go from God and Israel to Jesus and the church. And the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians, Christ loved the church so much that he gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Paul is actually drawing on the words of the prophet Ezekiel who wrote about God and Israel that he bathed Israel with water and washed the blood from you and point, put ointments on you. I, God, clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. Paul is making a huge point here in Ephesians 5 that Jesus is making his bride clean and holy. Just as God had bathed and washed and bandaged and clothed his sinful wife Israel, so Jesus will make the church clean through his work on the cross where he gave himself up for us, his bride. And then later in Revelation, we see this marriage finally take place. The bride, the church, has been made ready by Jesus through his work on the cross. And fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And we're told that that fine linen in Revelation stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And the wedding that takes place in heaven at that time fulfills what the prophet Isaiah had foreseen hundreds and now thousands of years before he wrote that the nations will see your righteousness and all kings will see your glory. And you, Israel, will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. And no longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land called married. For the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And so marriage tells the story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, from the Garden of Eden to the Garden. And therefore, the marriage metaphor is more than just an image. It's the ultimate reality from which the human institution of marriage gets its meaning and purpose. You see, Christian marriages serve to point men and women towards the ultimate marriage with Jesus on a future day in a future kingdom. Every Christian marriage over the last 2,000 years has been part of the living drama 
that has helped to tell the great story of Jesus' relationship and love for his bride, the church. Did you know that your marriage was doing that? The way that a husband loves his wife, the way that a husband cares for her every need, the words that a husband speaks to his wife and about his wife, and the way a wife loves her husband, desires him alone, speaks to him, and speaks about him to her friends. It's all communicating a part of the gospel message. Did you know that? The relationship of the Godhead is on display in your mutual submission to one another. The selfless love of Christ for the church is modeled in the serving and caring of wives by their husbands. The serving and caring of wives by their husbands. Notice that's the way that Ephesians phrases that. We usually think of wives caring and serving for their husbands, but Paul made it clear that husbands would be serving and caring for their wives. Just making sure you didn't think I missed that because I didn't know, you know, I just, I just making sure you knew that was the scripture. Okay, I just, just checking. The reality of heaven is foreshadowed through the way the husband loves his wife as his own body. For Christ too loved his body enough to prepare her to be presentable to the bridegroom. And so the question for those who are married this morning is, how are you doing? Is your marriage communicating all of this? Because it's a big responsibility. I mean, that's huge. That's a lot of pressure. That's why I'm with the disciples. So what you're saying, Lord, is it's better to not get married. Okay, just checking. Okay, just checking. My parts come in here in just a second, so, <clears throat> so we'll laugh at me here in just a second, too. But, uh, this is why marriage should not be entered into lightly. And it is why the enemy is bound and determined to destroy marriages. If the enemy can destroy your marriage, then he can put a mark on the story of the gospel. And so the enemy will do all that he can to stop the spread of the great story of Jesus. And he has found an end by destroying marriages from the inside and then having the world look on and say, see, there's nothing different about you than us. See, there's nothing that proves that there is a faithful and constant God. See, there is nothing that proves to me that God loves me like that. I don't want to be loved in that way. Your marriage matters in part because your marriage is proclaiming the truth of God's message to the world. However, marriage only tells part of the story. We've only looked at a part of the great drama. There's always more to the story there's a second half, a plot twist, a surprise ending. We've only read the story of Scripture through one person's account, the married person. But what about the other witness of, to this story? For relying solely on one metaphor diminishes the richness of God's character. And so celibate singleness also communicates the gospel message and reveals another aspect of God. The Apostle Paul is the metaphor king of the New Testament. Paul's philosophy is if one metaphor will do three, or yeah, if one metaphor would have worked, three will be even better, right? That's kind of the way that Paul does things. He mixes metaphors. He uses all kinds of things to try and get us to understand the, uh, who God is and how God operates and how God sees all of us and how he brings us all in. And so not only does Paul give us that beautiful marriage metaphor in Ephesians, but he also gives us another lesser-known picture in 2 Corinthians 11. 
In this metaphor, the bride is not portrayed through the imagery of a husband and wife exactly, but through a father and a virgin daughter with Paul himself playing the role of the father. So Paul writes, I, Paul, am jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I promised you the church to one husband to Christ and I want to present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So Paul sees himself as responsible for presenting his child, the church at Corinth, to Christ in the same way as a father would present his daughter for betrothal and marriage to a groom. The father in that day would have protected her and cared for her in his home prior to her marriage. And in the metaphors of marriage and singleness in both the Old and New Testament, the bride is actually made up of men and women, which is my metaphors are weird and poetic language gets very confusing. So here in this metaphor, the pure virgin daughter includes both women and men who follow Paul's teaching. That's the church. And Paul is concerned that the Corinthian church is being deceived and will be led astray from their sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And what's interesting about this is that in his previous letter to the Corinthian church, Paul had told them he wished everyone could be single, and he used unmarried women and virgins as an example of how they could be free from other concerns to be fully devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. And Paul is showing the church a picture of a pure virgin awaiting her groom to convey wholehearted devotion in this life to be ready for the age to come when the church will be presented to the bridegroom. Because remember, that's who the Lord is coming back for, is a church that is without spot or wrinkle. The Lord is coming back for a church that is clean and pure, that has had her sins washed away by the blood of Jesus and by the work that Christ did on the cross. That's who he's coming back for. You can't have the bride of Christ without also a virgin bride in this story. And in this way, celibate Christian celibate singleness also paints a portrait For the church is pictured as this undefiled virgin here in 2 Corinthians. It's also how the church is seen in Revelation. If you remember from our series, Babylon or the empire of the world is portrayed as the prostitute. But the church is seen always as pure and dressed in white as a virgin bride. It's meant to be a stark contrast. And remember the verse that we read from the prophet Jeremiah about God restoring the adulterous wife, or yeah, his wife, Israel, as if she were a virgin. Jesus told a story in Matthew 25 about 10 virgins who were waiting for their groom, and they got tired of waiting. Is he ever coming? Is he ever going to return? And they began to fall asleep, and then the groom arrived, and not all the virgin brides were ready to meet him. And the point was that not all had kept themselves ready and eagerly anticipating the return of the Lord. Not all were sincere in their pure devotion to him. And the virgin bride in scripture is a picture of what it looks like to be fully devoted to the Lord, always ready and expecting the Lord's return as the bridegroom. The virgin bride is the single witness who testifies to the sufficiency of Christ in all things by her unhindered devotion to him. And if marriage paints a picture of the love of God for his people and and Christ's love for his bride, the church, then singleness paints a picture of the sufficiency of Christ both in this life and in the age to come. 
Celibate singleness proclaims to the world that this life is not all there is and bears witness to the entire body of Christ that we should all be eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus, the long-awaited groom. And in this way, singleness illustrates the act of waiting and preparatory state that the church lives in at present. Both celibate singleness and marriage are needed within the church to portray a complete story to the world. One of my favorite authors, Lauren Winner, writes, they are like the interleaved pages of one novel. Both states teach important truths about God's story. And the story of God's all-sufficient love for the world shines most vividly when the two states, married and single, are celebrated equally and equally seen in the church. Now notice I've used the word celibate several times this morning. It's a key piece of how singles are a part of the great drama, the big part and the big story of scripture. Because in an over-sexualized society, in a culture that glorifies and idolizes sex, a culture that uses sex to sell anything and everything, a culture that exploits sex, celebrates it, and promotes it. In that type of culture, to think that anyone could actually live life without sex is ridiculous, according to the world. It's impossible, it's unthinkable, it's inhuman. A life without sex, there's the plot twist. The sermon is taking a turn because when was the last time we ever heard sex used this many times in a sermon? It sure wasn't happening when Pastor Phil was here. The world, and I was grateful. So the world isn't supposed, the world isn't supposed to understand it. They're not supposed to get why single people would remain pure and not have sex outside of a covenant marriage between one man and one woman. And to be clear, this isn't me preaching and telling you what teenagers need to be told. Because y'all, Teenagers are getting a bad rap this generation, right? We're saying some pretty awful, nasty things about a young generation that you people raised and that you people were in the boardrooms creating the culture that has impacted our kids. Our kids didn't ask to be growing up in a school that decided the curriculum should change. Our kids didn't decide that they should learn cursive or Roman numerals. That was somebody else. Our kids didn't ask to be raised in ungodly homes where two parents weren't married. Our kids didn't ask for that. You guys made that decision. So leave them alone and do better setting an example. I'm preaching to me because it occurs to me. Thank you. Thank you. Because it's very upsetting to, for, to me to discover that I am middle-aged. So <laughs> what in the actual, right? I just got people my age talking about young families. <laughs> Joke's on you. You're not young. We're middle-aged. Okay. So I'm not talking to teenagers. They'll be in there in second service, and, and this includes them 100%. But single people remaining pure, this is about grown-ups too. This is about single-again people. This is about people living with someone they never married. This is about middle-aged people like me. It's about people older than me that are sitting in here. Purity doesn't have an expiration date. And you see, not having sex communicates the story of Scripture 
that we are keeping ourselves pure because number one, Christ is sufficient in all things. That's my most favorite thing. Christ has been so sufficient to meet every need. And I'm sorry that I get kind of teary about it. Obviously, this sermon series has meant a great deal to me. <sighs> Jesus is so good. He is so sufficient. And it also communicates the second truth that this life is not all there is. When you compare eternity with how long you're on earth, that's a blip. That is a blip. A life, you see, of promiscuity, of sex outside of the covenant of marriage, it messes up the picture of the gospel message. It mars it. It says that we need something else besides Christ to complete us. It messes up the picture, and it tries to explain then that this life is the only life that we're living for, that it only matters what happens here, and it only matters then that you, that you satisfy yourself, that you please yourself, and that you do everything that the world is telling you to do. And so the question then is, singles, how are you doing? Oh, I liked it better when I was talking about you guys. All right. What story is your life as a single person telling the world, telling the world around you, telling your family around you about your wholehearted devotion to the Lord? Is Jesus truly sufficient in all things? Because no one said it was going to be easy. I said it a few weeks ago, and I'll say it again today. Salvation is free, but discipleship is costly. It will cost you everything, but oh, is it worth it. And this is the choice we make to follow Jesus, to take up our cross daily, deny ourselves, even the things that everyone else is doing, and we follow him. And one final shared element, celibate singleness and covenant marriage teach the church, is God's faithfulness. Singleness in scripture was both countercultural and a sign of radical devotion. And the choice Jesus said some would make to renounce marriage was a declaration and a commitment to be faithful to God alone. Celibate singleness is a way of destroying the idol some make of marriage and sex and the view that they are needed for life to have meaning rather than recognizing relationship with a faithful God is what fulfills and completes a person. Celibacy is a way for singles to remain faithful to God, even as he proves himself faithful to those who have devoted themselves in this way. And marriage also testifies to the faithfulness, the faithfulness of God to his people when wives and husbands exemplify this truth through faithfulness to the marriage vows they made to one another because purity continues in marriage. It, again, it is not just something we teach to teenagers. Purity looks like faithfulness to your marriage vows and your spouse by keeping the marriage bed holy. And interestingly, unfaithfulness in marriage communicates a truth about the gospel as much as faithfulness. And yet if we are faithless, he will remain faithful for he cannot disown himself. And God remains faithful to Israel and Christ remains faithful to his bride, the church. And faithfulness is fully on display through the divine marriage metaphor as played out in the drama of Christian marriages and as seen in the sufficiency of a faithful God to singles. And when the metaphor of marriage and singleness is used together, the church should be able to look at married couples and stand in awe at the picture they see reflected of the way in which Christ loves them and died for them. And equally, 
the church should be able to look at singles and stand in awe at the picture of sufficiency found only in Christ, a sufficiency which will be fully known by all on that future day for which the church is preparing. I hope we can all look at each other and see that. And I am thankful for the godly marriages that have been exemplified to me where I can see, wow, that is how God loves me. And I hope that there are those in this room who can say the same thing as they watch my life. The story of God's love for his people is on display on every page of scripture. The metaphor of marriage makes this clear. But the story of how Jesus fulfills all things and proclaims the kingdom is here is seen through the picture painted by singleness. And here's what I want to make sure you understand this morning. God loves you. Single folk, married folk, teenagers, older folk, we need the whole, the whole gamut of people right here. I need you to understand that God loves you. And just as God pursued Israel, even as she sinned against him, he is pursuing you today. He pursued you when you were unlovable and undesirable. He came running after you to redeem you and to save you. He chose to send his perfect, lovable, only son, Jesus, to live among us, to die in our place, to save and redeem Demas, and Jesus longs to cleanse you and restore you and prepare you to live in relationship with God both today and forever. Oh, how God loves you and sees you and cares for you. And the picture of marriage declares that to all of us today. And our faithful God is all sufficient to meet any and every need each of us, married or single, have this morning. Our God is present always and forever. He never leaves. He never fails. He never walks away. Jesus truly is all we need. And so as we close this morning, I want to open these altars. Because if you need to experience God's saving love and forgiveness, you can make your way here right now. You don't even need to wait. But maybe there are married couples who need to come together to just pray together that your commitment to each other would be strengthened that you would remind yourself of the pledge that you made and the covenant that you made standing at an altar like this maybe years and years, decades and decades ago, to just pray together. That's, I'm not saying if you come to the altar something is wrong in your marriage. I'm saying something is right, that you say we would just want to pray together because there is a war on marriage, but it may be you've been fighting the war out there and neglecting the battle that's been raging in your own home. And I encourage you to come today and just spend a couple of moments before Sunday school just praying for your spouse, renewing the covenant to each other and to God. And maybe there are singles here that just need to commit themselves to a life of holiness and purity for whatever length of time you're single. Because not every single person in this room is called to renounce marriage. But if you're not married right now, today, in this moment, and you're a follower of Christ, you're called to sexual purity. And there may be some who need to come to an altar to pledge that commitment to the Lord and just to settle some things. So I want everybody to stand. And here's the thing, we need each other. Married folks, they need us single folks. They need their single friends praying for them and holding them accountable and rooting for their marriages to succeed and to honor Jesus. 
And single people need their married friends to hold us accountable, to encourage us in our walk with Jesus, to make space for uh, us in your homes. We need each other, guys. We need each other. We need each other. We need our church family. We need to pray for one another because together, married and single, we tell the world the most incredible story ever written. We need marriages and single individuals to live faithful, committed lives to Jesus. So I'm just asking, will you take a few moments this morning to pray at an altar in your seat? If you're married, take the hand of the person. Hopefully that's your spouse. Otherwise, that sermon is just awkward. So if your spouse is next to you, take their hand. Pray for each other. If you're single, pray for the person next to you. Grab hold of somebody this morning. You're not in this alone. If you're single this morning and not by your choice, and it's been a painful season, you need to know you're not alone because you have a church family that is here, that is including you and that is praying for you. Oh, can we just spend a few minutes praying this morning? Because the story of the Bible is too important to not get it right. Trust in God, my Savior, the one who will never fail. He will never fail. I'll trust in God, my Savior.
what a beautiful message this morning. So good. Seriously, that is so good. Wow, yeah, you can clap. That was so good. And can I just say to you who have been married for 50 years or 30 years or 20 years or 10 years, thank you for five years, for two years. Thank you. I don't want to leave you out. Thank you. Because you are, you are pointing our students in the right direction. They are looking at you saying, I want to be like you when I get up in my age. I want to be like you. When, because the truth of the matter is that some of our students, they don't know what it looks like to be in a home where there's two, come on. They don't know. They don't know. I had the privilege this week of going to camp with some students, Pastor Brian and I, and one of the students, just in the middle of uh, an outing, we were, we were just sitting there eating uh, at the, the concession, and one of the students said, I just love the way that you and Mama Risha love each other, and now I know what it looks like and what it seems and what I need. I know what marriage is. And can I just tell you that they don't just see that in me. They see that in Dave Hensley. They, they see that in all of you. So thank you for being faithful to your spouse. Thank you for loving and caring for each other because what you didn't realize is what Pastor Sarah just preached is you are impacting a generation just by loving your spouse. Thank you. Thank you. Father, we thank you for this beautiful message that we heard this morning. We thank you, Lord, that it challenged us and stirred us and shook us and, Lord, just guided us and directed us and just being real to each other. And Lord, there are marriages that are in this room that have been that have been through some struggles, but Lord, they overcame them. And because it was not because of who they were, but it's because they kept you in the center of their marriage. So Lord, I pray for those today that are in this room who have been married for 50 years that God, you just continue to bless their marriage. I pray for those who have that are in this room who are, who are newlyweds have just been married for a few years. That God, I pray that you continue to bless their marriage. Lord, I thank you for what you've done. And I thank you for what you're doing. And I pray, God, that you'll take this message and help us as individuals apply it to our lives. Take heed to it, Lord, so that we can walk out and never be the same. Because, Father, if we can do it, then, Lord, our students can do it. So, Lord, help us as we as we, as we live for you and as we strive to love each other like Christ loved the church. Again, God, we thank you for what you've done, for what you're doing, and what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.